Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters, published by Zero Books in 2022, Ben Burgess reminds readers about what was best in Hitchens' writings and helps us gain a better understanding of how someone whose whole political life was animated by the values of the socialist left could have ended up holding grotesque positions on Iraq and the war on terror. Ben Burgess is a a Jacobin columnist and adjunct uh, philosophy professor at Morehouse College and the host of the YouTube show and podcast, Give Them an Argument. I'm so glad his book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much, Salvin. So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Yeah, so I uh, I was reading Christopher Hitchens uh, a very, very long time ago. I can remember being like, I don't know, 18, 19, and uh, in the late 1990s and uh, and reading uh the the nation you know the uh the actual dead tree uh you know print edition of the nation (laughs) (laughs) with uh with his uh his minority report uh columns in it and you know even then i i didn't necessarily agree with him about every single point but i i always i always found something really compelling about his writing uh and uh, he, you know, it is somebody who who drifted off my radar for you know for for a while. I was kind of vaguely aware of you know of what he was saying, but uh, but then you know he he kind of had this uh, you know in terms of my experience of him, you know this this kind of second act in uh, the two thousands uh, when he uh, when he became the sort of one of the most prominent faces of like uh, public atheism. Uh, in uh, in the United States, he would you know he would do debates with you know pastors and rabbis and priests, and you know and and, and I kind of came back on my radar uh, through through that. Uh, I remember through all this time, like you know I'd, I'd see him in you know, Slate magazine, uh, for example, places like that, uh, and the, you know he's always somebody I, I found fascinating that you know when he was saying things that I I agreed with. I, I think nobody ever said it better. Uh, and uh, and when he uh, and even when he was saying things that I disagreed with, you know, he he did have this kind of magical power to uh, to make me want to read him saying things that I really disagreed with or even abhorred in some cases. And and to even do it in such a way that you know, as I was like reading it, ever once so I oh, God, Oh damn! He actually has a good point about this part. <laughs> <laughs> and I and he's somebody who you know, like, there's a lot of from that last period of his life. There's a lot of the the 
evidence of that scattered around YouTube. You know, you can still find quite a bit of that. And it's somebody I'd, I'd, I'd find myself returning to over the years, you know, because because I, I did find something uh, really, really compelling and kind of magnetic about the, the presentation a lot of the time. And I... I would find myself thinking back to him and like reading his old books, you know, over over the years. And and my my hope leading up to reading this book is as you kind of alluded to before, uh, he's somebody who who spent the vast majority of his life on the left in a complicated, ambiguous way and didn't entirely leave it even at the end. Uh, but uh, he he took these these positions that I hate, you know, on, on uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, most obviously. Uh, and it was, I think a lot of people, a lot of sort of left writing about Hitchens, a lot of left reactions to Hitchens uh, at the, at the time, you know, and even when he died, you know, we're, we're sort of understandably colored by that, you know, the, the sort of uh, resentment of that break, you know, was, was still, was still really fresh. And my hope is that since I was I was writing this, you know, right around ten years after after he died, that that would be a, you know enough time that you know that it, that uh, that had passed, that sort of feelings about that would have cooled a little, and uh, people would be ready for a reassessment of the guy that we could that we could sort of. Uh, look back, you know, without quite as much of an emotional filter of, you know, how people might have felt about some of the positions he took in his last 10 years and see, hey, there's this body of work here that's really interesting and what can we learn from it and what's and what's good and valuable and holds up and the stuff that doesn't hold up, what can we even learn from how that happened? Right. Right. So um, for listeners who are not familiar with Christopher Hitchens, could you tell us a little bit about his background and his political uh, orientation? Sure. So Christopher Hitchens uh, grew up in, uh, in in England, in a naval family in England. His, his father was a commander in uh, the British Navy uh, and sort of upwardly mobile middle class uh, family, more or less. There's a, uh, there's a story that he tells in his memoir, Hitch 22, about uh, at a very young age overhearing his parents arguing about whether they could afford to or whether they should, you know, send him to what in uh, Britain, oddly enough, are called public schools, but like private boarding schools, right? Uh, and uh, his mother saying, well, if this country is going to have a ruling class, I want Christopher to be part of it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he, so he, he goes off, he, you know, he goes through that that system, you know, that uh, sort of elite private school system. He, he goes to Oxford. Uh, he probably... I have to say benefits throughout his later life in the United States from having a sort of Oxfordy British accent because uh, uh, Americans are very impressed by that. <laughs> um, and uh, but while he is uh, around the time he starts he starts at Oxford, uh, he becomes a committed socialist. He uh, he was already by this point a, a member of sort of the youth wing of the British Labour Party, the sort of mainstream uh, like moderate left party 
uh, in uh, in Britain, and, and he was very against the, the war in Vietnam, and he was uh, and, and he was sort of vaguely sympathized with like the left wing of the Labour Party. But he's recruited into this group called the International Socialists, uh, which would later become the Socialist Workers Party in the UK. Uh, and the important thing about these people is that they're Trotskyists, which means that uh, they're people who were on the side of the. Soviet dissident communist uh, Leon Trotsky, uh, uh, you know, who lost a faction factional struggle in, in the Soviet Union and was eventually assassinated. And these people, uh, you know, there are sort of range of views amongst people who come out of this tradition, but these people have a perspective, the international socialists on the Cold War, where they say uh, a pox on both your houses, that, you know, both sort of Soviet uh, style authoritarianism. And uh, and Western corporate capitalism are both bad, and they're and they're not interested in taking sides in that conflict, uh, and so they say neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism. So that's the background that Hitchens comes from. Uh, this is remember the mid to late sixties when people, many many people, felt like uh, there was sort of revolutionary tumult going on around the world, and who knows. Uh, what could uh, what could happen? Uh, where it could all lead? Uh, you you have things like uh, you know, a, in the same year, uh, a general strike and student uprising in Paris almost overthrows the government of Charles de Gaulle. And at the same time, on the other side of the Iron Curtain, uh, the there's uh, the Prague Spring, which is a sort of experiment in a more humane kind of socialism in Czechoslovakia that's crushed by Soviet tanks, and so. If you are a neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism guy, you could feel like you're really something important is crested and like, and, and you really might be on the cusp of some kind of world revolution. By sometime in the mid-70s, it's pretty clear that the revolution isn't happening anytime soon. Uh, and, you know, young uh, Christopher, like uh, like many people, sort of gets tired of, of going to, you know, going to uh, – to, to meetings all the time to you know to argue about obscure factional things and so he sort of moves out of uh of that uh but he retains his sort of basic socialist commitments for decades after this point uh even as he becomes a much more mainstream sort of journalist uh so he works initially for a magazine called the new statesman in the uk and then uh in uh at the beginning of the 1980s he goes goes on a uh there's like a exchange program where where he went to work for the nation in the United States and somebody from the nation went to work in the New Statesman in, uh, in the UK. Christopher decides he likes it in the United States. He wants to stay. Uh, they they give him a uh, they give him a permanent job at the nation. He spends a lot of time over the course of you know the eighties uh, writing about things like uh, the crimes of Henry Kissinger who will come up Again, I'm sure very soon, uh, and the sort of right-wing death squad dictatorships that the uh, the United States is uh, is backing in Central America. This is this is sort of the the beat that uh, that, that Hitchens is on at the Nation uh, in uh, in the the 90s. You know, he he writes this sort of famous uh, hate trilogy. Uh, about uh, these these figures that he really despises, uh, who are the aforementioned Henry Kissinger, Bill Clinton, 
and the one that really sounds odd now, which is Mother Teresa. We'll get into it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Why, why don't we stop for 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 a, for a moment there? So in ninety, that was very uh, good, very very helpful uh, kind of background, um, you know, setting for for Hitchens' life and and work. Um, so in nineteen ninety five, Hitchens writes a book titled "The Missionary Position: Mother Teresa in Theory and Practice." And that had a flair for titles. He, he, he really did. And and uh, I, I read it and, and found it fascinating. And the first thing that, that surprised me was that the popular perception, in America at least, of Mother Teresa is um, you know, even before she was uh, canonized by the Catholic Church, was that she was, you know, literally a saint. You know, she's this uh, uh, beatific, uh, you know, wonderful person that's helping all these poor people around the world, especially in India. So, uh, what was Hitchens' problem with Mother Teresa? Of all people, yeah, right. Of all people, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I mean, it is funny, right? Because, like, I think. Bits and pieces of this I knew even at the time, but there nevertheless, I know there are times over the decades that even I've slipped into like if I'm sort of like conversationally reaching for an example of like a extraordinarily good and self-sacrificing person, I'll be like, oh, you know, like a Mother Teresa. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so culturally embedded, right? That's the that's the the picture of, of this person. But uh, you know, he paints a uh, he paints a much less flattering uh, picture in, in the book, I think, very accurately. I think he's got her dead to rights. Uh, and one thing, because I mentioned earlier that uh, that Hitchens later, you know, in the in the 2000s, especially the late 2000s, you know, would, would become known as, as this sort of uh, uh, kind of one of the world's most famous atheists. And, you know, do, do these debates with clergymen and all that stuff. Uh Given that, and he's like, okay, he's writing a book about Mother Teresa, who has since become a saint. Uh, you uh, like, you think you know, this is going to be uh, an anti anti religious book, or or at least an anti Catholic book? I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's Mother Teresa, and it really isn't any of those things. Uh, not really. I mean, like, there's a there's a bit where he's sort of uh, bringing up, and it's certainly a negative from his perspective, the way that she consistently sides with the most kind of right wing fundamentalist faction within the Vatican on issues like, uh, you know, birth control or the ordination of women or, you know, or, or, uh, acceptance of gay Catholics or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, but you know, these are the complaints that a liberal Catholic might make, right? Like, uh, this is not like a, uh, he's not really interested in going after her, uh, theological views, except insofar as they, they, impact her behavior you know he's 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 really uh what he's really interested in is uh her her politics and her practices so um a lot of that book like it opens by talking about uh mother Teresa sort of pallied around with and lending her aura of moral authority to the uh devalier dictatorship in uh in haiti which uh is i've I mean, this is, um, you know, don't want to get too, too sidetracked on this, but I mean, like, uh, is, is really probably one of the most despicable governments on the planet, you know, at the, uh, at the, at the time, you know, that the, uh, is, is, uh, like, you know, if you, I mean, you know, if you try to, 
you know, organize a labor union in Port-au-Prince at the, you know, at the t- time he's, uh, he's writing about, you know, then like very likely, you know, there'll be pieces of you found on the side of the road, you know, cause the, uh, the death squads, uh, chopped you up. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Uh, this is, uh, baby doc, uh, Duvalier at this, at this point, the, uh, Papa doc, uh, was the, uh, was the father. Uh, and, uh, and she's, she's saying, you know, she's saying like, oh yeah, the, you know, my friends, you know, uh, my friend, you know, Duvalier is a great friend of the poor and all this stuff. It's like, okay. Uh, and, uh, and there's a lot of that and uh and there's a lot of uh and there's a lot of hypocrisy uh so you know she's she actually uh crusaded against liberalizing the aborted the uh, divorce laws in uh in ireland for example but then when her her friend uh princess diana uh was getting divorced uh she she's like oh it's probably for the best you know it's like <laughs> you know <laughs> which is it right <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And uh, and then the the really uh, you know the really the really gruesome stuff in uh, in that book is that you know she was she was you know accepting money from all over the world from from people who thought well they had the mental image of Mother Teresa that I I said earlier they 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 you know that it's like she's out there devoting her life to to the the you know, the most desperate people in the world in Calcutta, which is not entirely wrong, but is very misleading. Uh, and uh, people would assume, you know, like if they're donated to her, I mean, even though she, you know, to her credit, she never said this, but uh, that they would be, you know, like she's, she's operating these, these hospices in Calcutta that they, 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 they would be like going towards people's medical needs. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, that money overwhelmingly just went into religious missionary work uh, and the actual uh, level of care that was provided for, for people at the hospices was pretty barbaric uh, that they, uh, that, that she did not, you know, they, they didn't use, you know, modern anesthetics that in fact, she seems to have had these, these kind of, um, you know, gruesome views like the, you know, um, that uh, suffering, you know, suffering brings us closer to uh, to, to God, you know, and and I think, uh, yeah, I, it's a very, it's a very good book. It's a it's a very short and and, uh, and and digestible book, but it's it's not pleasant rated. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's quite. Uh... Um, chilling to 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 learn about the reality of how Mother Teresa's um, uh, uh, um, institutions actually operated in Calcutta, how she actually viewed these very poor, very desperate um, um, Indian um, people, and and all of the religious aura, as you say, and all of the religious charisma that 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 people. Um, you know, associated with her, how she used that uh, in in very very problematic ways. Um, so 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 thank you for that. Um, moving along in the trilogy, uh, Hitchens trilogy that you mentioned. So in in two thousand and one, Hitchens wrote a book. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry, uh, we skipped one. In 1999, Hitchens wrote a book about uh, uh, President Clinton, um, No One Left to Lie to, The Triangulations of William Jefferson Clinton. And again, obviously, there were many um, 
many conservative, uh, uh, politically conservative voices who were criticizing Clinton, and there were also maybe some liberal voices. Uh, was there something distinct about Hitchens' um, uh, critique of uh, Clinton? Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and I think it's also worth putting this into some context about the time in which he is writing it, because. Uh, for for anybody who's who's listening who does know a little bit about uh, American politics as they are in 2023, uh, it's a very different landscape uh, when he's uh, when he's writing this book uh, because this you know in um, you know in 2023 you have uh, much more of a separation between. Uh, you know, a, a kind of resurgent socialist left that comes out of the, t- the two campaigns by Bernie Sanders for uh, for president that, you know, is associated with various members of Congress, that there's like a, there's the magazine that I work for, uh, Jacobin, uh, which is which is kind of the uh, uh, most, you know, maybe the highest profile sort of outlet of that. Uh, and and there really wasn't anything equivalent to that. In uh, in the 1990s, when Hitchens is writing this book, which you know I'm emphasizing that because uh, criticizing uh, the Clintons as harshly as he did from the left was actually quite unusual at that time. I mean, like like when there's a sort of clear separation between like liberals and left liberals and socialists and all that stuff, uh, it. you know, it, it wouldn't be so surprising, you know, but uh, when Hitchens, even at the nation, you know, which is, which is where I was, you know, the, the nation, I think has probably, I don't know, always, but, you know, for a long time, you know, had a, a slightly ambiguous uh, political identity uh, that it sort of hovers somewhere between mainstream liberalism and, and something more radical and uh, and left wing and and so you could have somebody like like Hitchens who who was still very much calling himself a socialist and all of that uh, who was writing for them uh, and and he's certainly not the only one um, and but even at the nation a lot of people I think probably on a day to day level felt a little defensive about uh, about the Clinton administration because American politics as it existed then you have. You know, like you alluded to, you know, you've got the the right wing. You've got people like the, uh, you know, this very famous uh, right wing talk show host at the time. You know, Rush Limbaugh, or like uh, uh, the the sort of far right uh, speaker of the House of Representatives. You know, Newt Gingrich. You know, who are sort of out there all day, every day, attacking uh, attacking Bill and Hillary Clinton, and uh, and. You know, oftentimes I think it's it's kind of inevitable that people see uh, that people see the the most the people they hate the most in the world attack something often and you know often for unfair reasons even and 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 feel some kind of sense of attachment you know to the object of that attack. <laughs> but Hitchens, perhaps coming from this British socialist perspective, was less weighed down by that, and I think <laughs> had, a, uh, had a clearer view of the subject. And it's a brutal book. Uh, it's uh, maybe actually it's my my personal favorite of uh, of, of his books. Uh, and for for a lot of reasons, but uh, it's it's really the one uh, where there's the most uh, 
I mean, one thing that makes it interesting in terms of this sort of overall Hitchens oeuvre is that so much of his writing about politics is really about uh, foreign policy. Uh, uh, you know, what wars the United States is fighting, what governments it's backing other parts of the world. And there is definitely some of that in the, uh, in the Clinton book, but uh, this is relatively rare uh, as a, as a book where he really brings a lot of his rhetorical fire, a lot of his, his moral force uh, to thinking about uh, domestic politics, to thinking about economic inequality. Uh, so, uh, one of you know he he one of the things he really nails uh, Clinton's on early in the book is this alleged attempt that they made at, at healthcare reform in the early nineties uh, that was uh, really not at all what it was presented as being and uh, and very early in the process you know Hillary Clinton who was who was like taking point on that health reform uh, task force was you know told by like the physicians for a national health plan look at these polls that there's all this public support for having uh, a single payer you know Canadian style healthcare system where uh, you know it would, it would just be tax funded and you know you wouldn't have to it'd be like the fire department you know nobody when the fire department comes to put out your fire they don't uh, they don't say you know they, they don't like wait for you to swipe your credit card first <laughs> this is how healthcare should work and there's all this public support for it and the math works out for the taxes and all that stuff and and she was like yeah no right you know that's uh, we're not going to do that right you know they're not going to alienate the you know the big health insurance companies uh who were actually contrary to a lot of later mythology about this the the biggest healthcare companies were actually like enthusiastically supporters of what was at the time called uh hillary care you know smaller ones generally that were like funded the ads against it uh that didn't happen at the at the time although in some ways it it has a lot in common with you know, Obamacare, you know, which is the sort of later uh, healthcare reform that happened in the late 2000s, which, you know, is uh, an improvement in certain respects, but it sort of keeps the basic edifice of for-profit, um, for-profit health insurance that, you know, keeps people tied to their jobs. You don't want to piss off your boss because, you know, then if you lose your job, you know, you lose your health insurance. It keeps that whole obscenity in place. And so there's a lot on that. There's a lot on so-called welfare reform in the 90s uh, where uh, something, you know, what we used to have uh, uh, aid to families uh, with dependent children, it was called, uh, was the old welfare program in the United States. uh, And uh, that was eliminated uh, in in favor of this this scheme where sort of individual states would kind of get to decide to do what they want with the welfare money. So uh, anybody who might have heard of there's the uh, the tired football player Brett Favre, uh, there's a there's a scandal about him just very recently in Mississippi uh, because uh, because he was being paid to give like motivational speeches. Uh, from uh, from what was supposed to be Mississippi's welfare funds because of this Clintonian reform that they just broke it up into these block grants. There's a lot of a lot of the way the welfare reform worked was uh, that you would have to uh, if you didn't want to get thrown off benefits, you know, you'd you'd you'd, uh, you'd have to be uh, funneled into uh, this uh, this really grisly is called you know workfare. 
uh, system where you, uh, which was, you know, a few steps above slave labor, but I mean, like you, you like oftentimes like really unsanitary, unsafe, you know, kind of, kind of work that, you know, people are willing to do under these circumstances because the odd, the only alternative is like real destitution. But, you know, we're talking about like, you know, mothers with like, you know, children who are only a few months old immediately have to go back to work and, you know, and, and do this stuff that there's, uh, that, you know, he, he goes into to some gruesome detail about, uh, Tyson foods, uh, which was, uh, maybe coincidentally, maybe not a big backer of, uh, Bill Clinton's various political campaigns over the decades and a big beneficiary of, uh, big beneficiary of, uh, of workfare, uh, recipients, uh, and, you know, and this, uh, and you know, we're talking about um, you know, there's the, just this kind of Dickensian nightmare of workplace accidents, of sexual harassment, you know, of of et cetera, et cetera. And not to mention, you know, one of the things that he uh, like one of the things that he he points out very sharply in the book that uh, it's it's particularly striking because this is a time when uh, Bill Clinton was being investigated for uh, uh, for uh, you know things like uh, lying about a sexual relationship he had with a White House intern, which at the time the sort of prevailing liberal attitude was was. Uh, you know, maybe just short of boys will be boys, but uh, it was, you know, say just, just uh, who cares, right? You know, don't be a prude, which I think would maybe read a little bit differently in the uh, in the Me Too uh, era. But, one hopes, one hopes, one, one hopes, yeah. Uh, but uh, but at the time, uh, there's all the stuff about even even presidents have a right to privacy, and so he's he's describing these like requirements for welfare recipients under the, under Bill Clinton's welfare reform uh, where people are subject to all, you know, to, to like searches to make sure that they're not like hiding, you know, other sources of income or like a boyfriend who might be providing income. Uh, People are, you know, are subject to random drug tests. It says that it seems that only presidents have a right to privacy. Very, very, very well said. Yeah. It's quite, again, it really, Shocking and, and disturbing things about this program, the the, the quote unquote welfare reform, which was presented as this kind of liberal um, um, uh, uh, solution to the the problem of poverty in America, and then it turns out it's actually really just a, a way uh, to to uh, save money uh, uh, for the federal budget and and not have to raise you know taxes, and at the same time doing it at the expense of millions of poor people, many of them women, many of them minorities, um, really quite uh, quite despicable stuff uh, that Clinton, as you say, um, kind of. Uh, 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 from the perspective of the mainstream media, even the the liberal media really didn't focus on these um, misdeeds of Clinton. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, like one of the things that you'll, you'll find out about from, from that book and from uh, some of Hitchens's interviews on on YouTube, since he always brings it up, uh, but you will, you know, you could go. Uh, you could go many years of consuming liberal media in the in the 90s uh, w- without encountering this fact. Right? Is that uh, there was a point? So Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas just before he was the uh, the president, uh, and when he was running for for president in uh, in 1992, uh, he 
you know, like this is in the, this is a time period where, you know, politicians were really competing with each other in the United States to show who was like toughest on, uh, on, on crime. Uh, so uh, there's like, there's a, like there's a sort of the previous election in 1988, there's this really notorious exchange where uh, like Michael Dukakis, who's the Democrat who's opposed to the death penalty is asked like, okay, but what if like your family was, you know, murdered and, you know, and, you know, like they lay out this whole grisly scenario and, you know, wouldn't you want that person, you know, to, to be executed? Uh, and, uh, and, you know, that was like a presidential debate question. And so uh, for, for similar reasons in, in 1992, uh, Bill Clinton wants to, wants to prove that, that nobody could, can out tough him on crime. Uh, and so during the presidential campaign, he actually flies back to Arkansas to personally oversee the execution of this guy, uh, Billy Ray Rector, uh, who uh, is somebody who, by the time he was executed, uh, I think some of this is because of a like gunshot accident, you know, during the commission of the crime. But by the time he's he's executed, this is a profoundly mentally disabled person. Uh, in fact, I don't. I believe under the later Supreme Court ruling, you know, several years too late to, to save Rector, uh, it, it actually wouldn't have been uh, legal to uh, to execute him anymore. Uh, you know, but like, you know, when he was executed, you know, he uh, he uh, like he assumed that the the doctors were were there to like you know give him medical help, but he was like helping them find a vein, you know, for the the lethal injection. You know, this is. Uh, and this is something that uh, you know. This is something that that Hitchens was uh, was really was really passionate about. This is you can you can find, um, you know, you can find uh, the a, a debate that he did uh, that's still available on YouTube in 1997, uh, where he and uh, Jesse Jackson are arguing with a couple of guys from the National Review magazine about uh, about the death penalty. Uh, and the former mayor of New York is moderating for some reason. It's a really strange debate, but, uh, but he, you know, but like his, his view is, you know, is this is like, uh, this, this is a kind of legalized, uh, human sacrifice. Uh, and, you know, I, I think at least if we're sort of interested in, in this, in the kind of freeze frame of, of Hitchens politics at this time in the, you know, mid to late nineties, you know, when he's, uh, you know, 1999, you know, when he's writing this, uh, this book about Bill Clinton, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is really, this is really it. He's, he's got this, I think, entirely correct outrage about what America is like in the 1990s that, uh, that, you know, we're sort of out of, on, on the one end, uh, you know, we are, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of, leaving people to, to just kind of wallow in poverty and taking away, you know, the, the few government supports that, uh, that had ever existed, you know, in, in America's honestly, by global standards, fairly paltry, uh, welfare state. And, you know, on, on the other hand, you know, where, uh, you know, when you, uh, you know, when you step out of line, you know, the, the enforcement is, uh, is, is really brutal, you know, and this is, uh, and, I don't know how much optimism that, you know, he really has in 1999 about, you know, having a, a sort of qualitatively better kind of society of the kind that he always used to, to advocate. Right. But he, you know, he certainly at least sees that like, you know, this isn't it. 
Right, right. And um, you mentioned before that in 2001, Hitchens writes a book um, titled The Trial of Henry Kissinger. And again, of course, many um, people have criticized uh, 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 Kissinger over the years. Is there something distinct about uh, Hitchens' uh, critique of Kissinger? Yeah, I mean, I think that... uh... You know, Hitchens' critique of Hit Kissinger in that book is is a very uh, – I mean, I'm putting it this way is going to make it sound much drier than it is. It's actually a really gripping book. But it's it's written in this very uh, literally prosecutorial sort of way. Like in other words, uh, he is not just sort of going through everything that Kissinger was involved with that was horrible – uh, which would be, you know, a series of much longer books. Uh, but he's he's really specifically, I've been mean, thinking about, okay, if Henry Kissinger were actually going to be put on trial, right? What are the things that that he could actually be criminally prosecuted for? What are the things that we could kind of get him on that uh, that are, you know, there is sort of definitive, you know, proof of uh, of his involvement with? So he's he's really, you know, he's he's not. Uh, you know the the sort of larger thrust of the book is not uh, sort of just kind of thinking about uh, you know it's not a critique of of Kissinger's policies right it's 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 not oh you know you supported this which was really bad you shouldn't have done that or you know you you uh, or or even like you know you you were instrumental in the United States waging some terrible war somewhere, you know, which all of which, of course, there's, there are abundant examples of with, with Kissinger. But what he's really tried to do is, is go through uh, publicly available transcripts and other kinds of evidence and, and find evidence of actual crimes, you know, that, that he, uh, that should, and this is not entirely, I mean, it sounds fanciful and in a sense it is because as a incredibly powerful and well-connected person, it's very unlikely that, uh, that Kissinger would, would ever actually see the inside of a courtroom. Although I will say on the other hand, even now there are several countries that, that Kissinger can't visit because, because there, there are, you know, there are actual like warrants out for him. Uh, you know, they, that, uh, he would, uh, you know, like that, that he would, uh, that, you know, the, the police in those countries would be instructed to, to bring him in for questioning about things like, for example, in Spain, you know, his, the, uh, uh, the Pinochet government in, in Chile's, uh, you know, disappearance of, you know, multiple Spanish citizens, uh, you know, in, in Chile and, uh, what, uh, and, and, and what Henry might know about this, uh, you know, what light he might be able to shed on it. Uh, and so, uh, so, yeah, so I just mentioned Chile. I mean, this is this is one of the uh, this is one of the examples uh, that you know you could you could actually find uh, transcripts and discussions where uh, you know internal discussions uh, where Kissinger uh, in his various roles. I think I think at that point as national security advisor, I don't think he was Secretary of State yet uh, under under Nixon uh, was like literally talking about assassinating. A general in Chile who was uh, who was not even a you know I, I guess I should say just just for like thirty seconds of background to all of this right that the that uh, in at the beginning of the nineteen seventies a democratic socialist uh, named Salvador Allende was elected as the president of Chile and uh, he uh, and 
after a very brief and tumultuous uh, term, uh, tumultuous in large part, not entirely, but in large part because of uh, the uh, the United States uh, involvement in stirring the pot. Uh, he was deposed in a military coup uh, favor of this uh, general, uh, Augusta Pinochet, uh, who uh, to imposed you know neoliberal economic policies on Chile with literally people like these big libertarian economists like Milton Friedman coming down to uh, coming down to uh, to give them you know Santiago to give you know give economic advice uh, and also uh, and also torturing and killing uh, lots of uh, lots of leftists and unionists and, uh, and dissidents in Chile. To be and clear, it, Milton Friedman didn't do the killing. He, 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 <laughs> yes, he, to be clear, Milton Friedman, he, I'm, I'm he, not actually accusing Milton he, Friedman he of gave the economy. He gave the economic advice for how the government could uh, change yeah, yeah, the yeah. economy, uh, and then the government, to, to, to keep itself yeah, yeah. in power, did the killing. Yes, okay, yes. Just, just so I, we're I clear. Not, I've actually, <laughs> I actually do uh, very, very slightly know uh, Milton Friedman's son, David, uh, I did a debate with him about capitalism and socialism once. Uh, so, um, to be clear, David, I'm not accusing your dad of killing anybody in Chile. I, uh, I am accusing him of, of, of giving, uh, of giving economic advice to a really awful person. Uh, but, uh, but in any case, terrific, uh, terrific. Okay. <laughs> now that we've got that out of the way, we now can that continue. We've got that out of the way, yeah. It's, um, so in the lead up to these events, uh, you know, there there is like tangible documentary evidence of uh, of Kissinger talking in these national security meetings, you know, in uh, the White House about. Yes, exactly. Right. This is the, the Nixon White House. Um, I'm not sure if the president is literally in the room at this point or not, but they have a uh, but uh about killing this general in Chile, who was not even a socialist, but was but was you know somebody they were like fairly sure wouldn't go along with a uh, with a military coup, and that's that's on that's on record. There are places you know, uh, and and similarly you know you could find him talking about you know in these uh, about you know very specific uh, like. Things that you could actually prosecute as as war crimes in uh, when when uh, the Nixon administration uh, bombed Cambodia uh, in uh, the sort of late stages of the war in Vietnam, which you know is was I mean we Americans refer to that as the secret bombing of Cambodia. I don't think it was a very secret uh, very secret to the Cambodians, but uh, you just had to look up. Yeah, exactly right. It was uh, it was kept secret from Americans uh, and and the. The advice, the uh, the inst- not advice, the instructions uh, that uh, Kissinger discussed with President Nixon and, and passed on to the Pentagon brass uh, for that were anything that flies on anything that moves. You know that, that there's there's it's like very explicit about not distinguishing between civilian and military targets in uh, in Cambodia, and and it is it is striking, right? So I I think like. Pulling back from from some of these specifics about Chile, about uh, Cambodia, uh, about uh, East Timor, where you know a, a uh, U.S. backed uh, dictator Suharto, uh, uh, in you know, Indonesia, commit, uh, 
yeah, in Indonesia, right? You know, so Indonesian dictator uh, Suharto uh, occupied East Timor, uh, committed, uh, you know, like really uh, sort of in terms of in terms of proportion of the population. I mean, like actually the the worst. Um, you know, the worst mass genocide, you know, since, since the, the Nazis, you know, that the, uh, uh, as, as well as, uh, as well as a lot of massacres within Indonesia, uh, itself. So pulling back from, you know, from the sort of specific, you know, hypothetical indictments of, uh, of, of Kissinger, like one of the things that I always remember for that book that kind of frames the whole thing, uh, is, Hitchens like recounted in the introduction, you know, seeing uh, seeing Kissinger at like I think a Vanity Fair magazine party, uh, and uh, and this is and you know even now, right? I mean, I'm, okay, Kissinger's much older now. I mean, he probably makes it out to parties a lot less, but uh, he, uh, but you know, he's still uh, you know he's still asked to to write for prestigious journals. He's still he's still brought on news networks, you know, to to opine about the news of the day. Hillary Clinton considers him a great friend of his of hers. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Famously, in the 2016 campaign, she uh, she said uh, she said Hillary uh, Henry Kissinger <coughs> was uh, <coughs> was her great friend, uh, trusted advisor. Uh, <coughs> she uh, every every White House Biden hasn't yet, but every every previous uh, White House since the Nixon administration has uh, has 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 brought him uh, brought him in to uh, to give them foreign policy advice and. Uh, and so, so this is, you know, in some ways, it, it, it runs parallel to the the Clinton example that uh, that I, I think you know you have uh, you know you have Christopher Hitchens who's you know coming from a different national context, different political context, has a little bit of an outsider's perspective on all of this, was also somebody who was you know deeply involved in uh, the anti-Vietnam War movement in Britain. Um, that uh, actually, uh, apparently, slightly knew Bill Clinton back then. This this was a, this was one of the right wing attacks on, on Clinton in the early nineties. That he got to an anti war protest in London, uh, and uh, uh, he also has in, in Hitchens's memoir, Hitch Twenty Two. He he has uh, one of my favorite uh, details. Is you know at the also there's also this big deal about whether you know this says something about the early nineties that this was such a big deal. You know about whether Clinton had ever smoked pot. And uh, and he he infamously tried in, in classic Clinton fashion to split the difference and said that he didn't inhale. Uh, <laughs> so he smoked it, but he didn't inhale it. Uh, well, well, uh, Hitchens' claim is that uh, is that Clinton was telling the truth about never inhaling marijuana. He said he preferred edibles. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like you know but he see you know but it's like yeah it's like like you see uh kissinger at a vanity fair party it's like who's this like you know sort of like dumpy guy with this like these like stale jokes who everybody's gathered around surely this isn't the person who's involved in you know overthrowing democratically elected governments overseas and you know in, in indiscriminate mass bombing campaigns and disappearances of you know inconvenient priests and journalists nope that's that's, that's the same dude <laughs> right 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 so 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 we we have to get to um the 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 kind of uh, central question maybe in Hitchens um, 
political life and career, which is that this is someone who, as you, you we've been speaking, and as you note in your book, you know, for decades was was anti-imperialist, was against, you know, American involvement in foreign wars, um, you know, and then after the the terrorist attack on and um, on the Twin Towers in 2001, he famously um, comes out in support of the U.S. invasion of I, Afghanistan and then Iraq. And the obvious question is, how on earth could this happen? How could someone who is a committed uh, international socialist end up supporting U.S. military aggression? Yeah. How do we go from uh, neither Washington nor Moscow to Washington after all? Uh, yeah. yeah, right. Uh, so this is one of the big questions I was trying to answer in the book. And one of the reasons that I was interested in writing this in the first place is because it seemed to me that a lot of left-wing writing about Hitchens uh, that kind of, especially from, as I said at the beginning of our discussion, back when the kind of wounds were at their rawest, right? That the, uh, that at their freshest, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that like, obviously, you know, you, you have, uh, somebody who's in some cases a friend, a comrade, you know, has, uh, has like gone off in this direction that you find abhorrent, right. You know, and you experience it as a betrayal and, and you're sort of very prone towards the least charitable imaginable, explanations of uh of what happened here it's like oh maybe he just liked the spotlight maybe he maybe he maybe he was just like selling out so he could like go on cnn more you know maybe uh uh you know an aspect of hitchens that will be familiar to anybody who knows a little bit about him but uh we haven't we haven't talked about is that the man was a fairly legendary drinker uh and so you'll even see you know uh there's like a there's a hilarious video you can see on YouTube of of uh, where he's being asked at some event. You know, the uh, the interviewer is like, "All right, we've got a lot of questions here for people about your uh, uh, about your personal you know preferences." And uh, and somebody says, "What would you? Is the one thing you take to a desert island?" Somebody else says, "What's your favorite whiskey?" Is oh. Those sound to me like the same question. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of Johnny Walker Black. <laughs> so you know, you even see people bringing that up. That it's like, so did he have like a lost weekend in fall two thousand and one, and then he just sort of realized that you know that he'd taken this insane position, and he couldn't walk it back. You know, and the alcohol just like eat his brain somehow, and like he lost his critical faculties, and you know, got him to support the uh, the war. Uh, is uh, is it perhaps the anti-religious views that you know became such a big deal in the late two thousands? So did he just care too much about atheism and this made him Islamophobic, and that is what led to uh, to these positions? And for all sorts of reasons, I don't find any of this remotely convincing. Um, I don't think that um, you know I don't think that he was just pretended to have this this position because somebody was offering him big sacks of cash with dollar signs on them. Uh, in fact, I think that if if you just wanted to position himself in a careerist way, I think uh, simultaneously taking the position that would most alienate his former uh, his his former supporters and comrades about the wars, and also taking the position that would most alienate the American right, uh, his ferociously anti-religious arguments in the 2000s is probably a pretty bad way to do it. Uh, I also don't think that it's it's the booze. Uh, you know, I, I have 
you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just being too, you know, as, as somebody who, you know, not as much as Hitchens <laughs> also enjoys whiskey. Uh, you know, uh, maybe I'm just defensive about that, but it seems to me that, you know, uh, there have been plenty of committed socialists and anti-imperialists, uh, who, uh, who, who, who drank just as much of that. I'm pretty sure at least half of the people who stormed the winter palace in the Russian revolution, uh, like vodka <laughs> as much as Christopher Hitchens liked whiskey. I don't think that's it. Um, and even the Islamophobia, uh, well, I wouldn't deny that there's an element of what you could reasonably call as Islamophobia in some of in some of his um, his comments and commentary from uh, from the from the 2000s that I think that you could accuse him of not making fine enough distinctions between different kinds of uh, you know Islamic doctrine. Although you could also make the same accusation about Christianity. Right, you know that 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 he's he's lumping that together too, uh, and certainly I think he's wildly overestimated the realistic danger that Al Qaeda style terrorism could pose to Western societies. Uh, if you want to call that Islamophobia, I'm not going to fight you on it, uh, but uh, it's certainly misguided. You know, whatever it is, it's also not exactly a unique Christopher Hitchens problem. That was kind of everybody in the Anglo American mainstream in the uh, in the 2000s, uh, but. I think the Islamophobia explanation stops making sense the more you look at the details, uh, because this is not actually. And I, I understand how it happens, right? Because somebody could maybe they could sort of maybe vaguely remember a few Christopher Hitchens columns for the Nation. They could uh, maybe they maybe they saw some of these books that we were just talking about that that hate trilogy at the end of the nineties, you know, beginning of the two thousands, and then kind of the next time they noticed him. Uh, he was on TV supporting the war in Iraq and could think, oh, my God, this is this is some kind of, you know, Jekyll and Hyde transformation, what happened. But I think if you're zooming in and paying closer attention to the details, this is actually a very gradual transformation on his foreign policy views uh, that was already well underway by not very far into the 1990s. Uh, and one reason why that's important is that his – the first war where he warms up to the idea that the U.S. military could actually be a force for good in the world and, and softens his usual anti-interventionism is not actually one where the United States is bombing Muslims. It's one where the United States is intervening on behalf of Bosnian Muslims against Serbian Christians. And uh, and in fact, in the 2000s, even with, with Iraq – uh, you know, it's his worst position. Part of the backstory of that, you know, he'd been opposed to the first Gulf War, but then he'd, he'd spent time in Iraq after that, and, and particularly he'd spent time in Iraqi Kurdistan, that after the first Gulf War, uh, there was this, uh, you know, Kurdish region in northern Iraq that was sort of uh, managed to assert a kind of de facto independence that, you know, that it, it wasn't under the control of Saddam Hussein's government. There was a no-fly zone there. And, um, no, supported by American uh, uh, military. Yeah, exactly. Right. And he'd, he'd spent time in, in, uh, in this, this Kurdish enclave in, uh, in northern Iraq. And you had uh, local leaders there who for, you know, reasons that I think require no explanation. We're all in favor of the United States getting rid of Saddam Hussein for them. Uh, and 
some of these local you know, Kurdish leaders were people who had been 1970s radicals too and could speak to Hitchens in his own language. Uh, and, you know, also, of course, you know, they, they really had been the, the victims of, of really awful crimes from Saddam Hussein's government. That's all true. Uh, and... And so a lot of his trajectory was, in fact, influenced, you know, by his his time spent in northern Iraq. Uh, and in the 2000s, when he's, he's taking these, I think, horrifically misguided foreign policy positions, you know, he often wears a uh, flag lapel pin and it's not stars and stripes. It's 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 not the Union Jack. Uh, it's the uh, the flag of, of Kurdistan. Uh, and, you know, this is an overwhelmingly, you know, Muslim nation, I mean, a relatively secular one, but, you know, a, a overwhelmingly Muslim nation. Uh, so this too, I think, makes me think that Islamophobia is a huge oversimplification. So if it's not Islamophobia, it's uh, it's not just selling out or liking the limelight. It's not, uh, it's not that bottles of Johnny Walker Black should come with warning labels that they might make you support neoconservative foreign policy. <laughs> then, then what is it? And I basically think it's two things that come together by the end of the nineties, and especially after after the nine eleven terror attacks, uh, both of which are really about the sort of long term effects of the end of the Cold War. That one of them is that Hitchens has sort of lost faith in the socialist project. That even though he was never a supporter of uh, you know the Soviet model. Of you know what a you know post capitalist society would look like, and he wouldn't even think of it that way exactly. Uh, it's it's still true, I think, that when the Cold War was going on, when so much of global politics was defined by this clash between systems, these sort of basic questions about how to organize a society felt like they were on the table, that they were like being meaningfully contested, and even if your even if your position was door number three, right? You know, none of the above. Uh, that still felt like a sort of live position in a way that it really didn't in the 90s. I mean, the 90s is a time of like, in fact, it's kind of hard to remember now, you know, but like just tremendous ideological triumphalism, you know, that uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote a book called The End of History that uh, sort of, you know, which, you know, very few people read the book, but, you know, the title sort of sloganeeringly kind of summed up the way a lot of people felt about this, that, of course, there would still be historical events, but like the sort of these sort of big questions about how to organize the society were just over. Liberal capitalism had won and the old, you know, you just had to sort out the details now. Uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher in the UK, you know, had this famous phrase, you know, Tina, there is no alternative, uh, that they're just like this advanced kind of rapacious neoliberal capitalism, you know, that, that we had that, that was, that was just it. That's all that was on the table. You know, she, she famously said once that uh, she was asked what her greatest accomplishment was. And she said, new labor, meaning that the, uh, the labor party drifted in her direction economically, <laughs> you know, it's like really the, the I sort of Tony deep, Blair. Yeah. Tony Blair. Exactly. Yeah. Deepest side of, of her, uh, of uh of of her ideological triumph you know and so under these circumstances i mean calling yourself a socialist in washington dc in the 90s it was like uh i don't know you know you might as well it, it's 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 like almost like a charming eccentricity right you know you, you might as well say like i'm a uh you know i'm a supporter of the restoration of the bourbon dynasty in france you know it's like oh okay <laughs> <laughs> you know, good luck with that right uh, 
and I think over the course of the nine days, uh, he has uh, uh, Hitchens sort of, uh, even though he's like rhetorically, right? You know, he's he's still he's still saying oftentimes even very radical socialist things. I think as he sort of admitted when he reflected back on it. Uh, later in his, his life, I think he, he sort of had a harder and harder time taking it seriously as like a, a live, viable political possibility that, you know, he he actually admits in Hitch 22 that, you know, he always used to go on, uh, you know, PBS and the host would ask him, oh, Christopher, are you still a socialist? And, and like half the reason he was still saying yes is because he didn't want to give that guy the satisfaction <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of, saying, of saying no. Right. Like it, it just it just goes. Uh, and, and by the time he writes letters to a young contrarian, which is actually pre 9-11, it comes out like a month after 9-11 or something. Right. But it's or actually I think it comes out maybe on 9-11. Anyway, it's like right right around when that happens, but certainly written before letters to a young contrarian. He basically says, look, I don't. I don't like the kind of unrest- you know unrestrained, rapacious monopoly capitalism we have. I hope we can find some way to to restrain its its excesses, but his, the historical moment is over. Right, we're not going to have socialism. So that's one thread, and then the other thread is just look. He spent all this time as a globe-trotting journalist over the decades spending time in countries like, for example, Saddam Hussein's Iraq uh, and befriending local dissidents and presumably, certainly as a young Trotskyist in the 70s, uh, he thought that, you know, some future wave of global socialist revolutions would sweep all of these regimes into the dustbin of history. And, you know, maybe there's some degree of some version of that that he was still holding out hope for later. But by the time he's sort of fully admitted to himself that that's just not going to happen, then you, uh, then, okay, uh, at least he wants to hold out hope for some kind of democratic revolution if socialist revolution is off the table. Uh, And this is the exact point in this chain of reasoning where I can retain sympathy for, for what he's saying. And here's where I lose it. You know, that, that sort of says, okay, well, what's the force in the world that has the power to bring about these democratic revolutions? It's the 82nd airborne, you know, it's, uh, it's the U S you know, sent in the Marines. Uh, and, and I think that I, I guess the last thing I would, I would say about this is just, you know, both of these factors are about sort of post cold war disorientation and, and I think it is really important that the kinds of wars that the United States are fighting uh, do seem at least superficially really different. That, in other words, look, I think that there's a pretty considerable echo of the Nixon-Kissinger approach to Cambodia in like the shock and awe bombing of Baghdad. Uh, I think that there's, uh, you know, I think that you know, the sort of pretensions of being interested in spreading, you know, democracy, you know, a mean about as much in these later wars as they, they do in the, uh, in the cold war, uh, you know, the, the regime where, you know, I mean, 
as as awful as it is that Afghanistan is is ruled by the Taliban again, you know, it's you know maybe the worst government in the world, but you know, social progress in Afghanistan would have to come from within that society. Tried to impose it from uh, from from outside. I mean, like that that had a uh, the government we we're propping up by the end had about as much popular support as the government of South Vietnam, and with with very similar results, right? So I would see much more continuity. But I think from Hitchens's perspective, <coughs> what he so much of what he hated the most about like what Reagan, for example, was doing in the 80s was that we we're propping up these like, uh, you know, right wing dictators, death squads in, uh, in Latin America. And if George W. Bush had been fighting wars against like peasant communist revolutionaries like LBJ had in Vietnam or like uh, Reagan had in Nicaragua, for that matter, in a way. Right. And uh, uh, then. I don't think Hitchens ever would have been able to bring himself to support that. But I think when he starts to see the kinds of enemies we're fighting in the 90s and 2000s, I mean, Slobodan Milosevic uh, and this this like right-wing ethno-nationalist government in Serbia, uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, Saddam Hussein's you know, Ba'ath Party in Iraq, he'd say, look, which do these look more like? The kinds of uh, – the kinds of – you know, peasant communist revolutionaries being fought against the previous U American wars, or exactly the kind of forces that the United States was propping up all around the world in this era. So if the you know if the empire is going to, uh, you know is 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 going to you know like there's a there's a point actually in, in one of his in a debate that he did in the 2000s uh, with his his brother Peter Hitchens, who's a really interesting char- character because he's like the uh, uh, he's like the the photographic negative of Christopher, you know, because because he's like very deeply religious uh, and a conservative, but also kind of an isolationist about foreign policy. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> in this debate with uh, with Christopher uh, with Peter in the in the uh, it's like two thousand eight or something in, uh, in in Grand Rapids, uh, there's a questioner who who asks him, you know would you now admit that our adventure in Iraq has been imperial? And he was like, yeah, of course. Um, but the United States was also an empire when it was supported Saddam Hussein, right? You know, at least at least now, right? It's it's sort of, you know, using that imperial power on the right side is, is his analysis. I think that the, uh, I, I think that, you know, I would just say as my editorial comment that the last couple of decades uh, have, have rendered pretty decisive judgment on that. Right, right. Well, there's so much more to to talk about your book, but we have run out of time. So I want to thank you so much for taking your time to share your thoughts with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.